Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. Hello and welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast. I'm Dr. Sophie Ambler, lecturer in medieval history and deputy director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Gregory Lippiot, lecturer in medieval history at the University of Exeter. Gregory began his career in the United States as an undergraduate studying history and English at the Virginia Military Institute and came to the UK after winning a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Hartford College, Oxford, where he completed his DPhil under the supervision of Professor Christopher Tyman. His doctoral thesis investigated the career of Simon of Montfort, leader of the Albigensian Crusade, and his government, both in his ancestral lands and in the south of France. Gregory then spent two years at the University of East Anglia as a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow, working on baronial government around the Mediterranean in the 13th century before his appointment at Exeter in 2019. His various publications include a monograph, Simon V of Montfort and Baronial Government, 1195 to 1218, published by Oxford University Press, and an edited volume of essays from a conference he hosted in Poitiers, which drew together several of us who work on the Montfort family and their context, published in 2020 as Simon de Montfort, Le Croiset, Son Lénage et Son Temps. He is currently working on a major new book for Oxford University Press on the Statutes of Pamier, the law code issued by Simon V in 1212. So who better to join us on the CWD podcast to discuss the Albigensian Crusade, a topic that continues to generate a lot of debate amongst historians, as well as sparking the interest of a broader public. Gregory, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I wonder if we can begin um, with... A, a broad brush picture of the Albigensian Crusade because the name will be familiar to many people, um, both through through its history, um, but also through popular culture, through novels and um, and documentaries, and, and those who visited um, the Midi as well. Could you just sketch for us the essentials of this expedition? Um, how did it how did it unfold, and, and what do we need to know? Sure. So I suppose the the key background is. The, the context, as it were, is the growth, or at least the perceived growth, of dualist heresy, a belief in uh, a good god and an evil god that was set up uh, against a more orthodox Christianity in this what's currently the south of France, known as the Midi, which was at the time loosely politically linked to the French kingdom, but, but in practice was, uh, had a high degree of political independence a very strong uh, cultural distinction uh, and linguistic distinction from, from the North. Um, and one thing that's perhaps worth stressing at this point is the fact that the Albigensian Crusade is not a contemporary moniker. One of the more frequent ways that it is referred to in papal letters, in the great um, narrative history, contemporary narrative history of the Crusade, um, the Historia Albigensis, is it's frequently referred to as the Negotium Pacis et Fidei. And so the, that is the business of the peace and the faith. And so it's very, very frequently the, the problem in the problem, perhaps in, in air quotes, uh, that's perceived in the south of France is one of a breakdown in uh, Orthodox faith, but also a breakdown in public order or in, in peace. And so this is a, this is a situation that had been uh, noticed uh, and flagged up since the Third Lateran Council in 1179, and had attracted a lot of papal attention over the course of the latter half of the latter uh, quarter of the 12th century. Uh, in the early 13th century, a number of missions to try and restore peace and faith in the south of France uh, culminated in a delegation of papal legates, one of whom was Peter of Castelnau, who was working. Uh, to convince the Count of Toulouse, the, the greatest magnate in the region, Raymond VI of, of Toulouse, to make peace with his neighbors, particularly in Provence, and to suppress heresy within his lands. In January 1208, Peter of Castelnau was murdered uh, while crossing the Rhone. 
and the murderer was not apprehended but was uh, apparently identified as a member of the following of Raymond of Toulouse with whom Peter had had uh, a very, very vehement disagreement. Uh, and so Raymond was, was targeted with uh, a crusade that would be called to bring about this peace and faith initiative in the South. Raymond and other lords in the region were identified as the chief obstacles to, those, uh, to the peace and to the faith. And so after attempting uh, over, the, over the past decade, in fact, even before the death of Peter of Castelnau, to get the, Fr the French king involved, the Pope at the time, Innocent III, called for the barons, particularly of France, but elsewhere uh, as well, to take the cross as uh, had been uh, the practice for over a century in going to liberate Jerusalem, uh, to take the cross to extirpate heresy in the South and to avenge the death of Peter Cast of Castelnau. Now, Raymond did a pretty nice, fancy piece of work uh, in getting himself reconciled to the church apologizing for the death of Peter of Castelnau, and in fact signing himself as a crusader in order to divert the crusade from his own lands, and instead to set it on the course to attack the lands of his nephew, Raymond Roger Trenkeville, uh, who was the Viscount of Béziers in Carcassonne. And this army then moves south along the Rhône uh, and enters into the territories of Raymond Roger with uh, Raymond riding along with them. The first major city in uh, Raymond Rogers' lands that they come to is the city of Béziers, uh, which is well defended on the Orb River uh, and has strong walls and is seen to, if, if it's going to be reduced, it's going to take a long period of time to do so. The Crusaders prepare to lay siege to the town, but through um, a horrible accident of uh, over-enthusiasm on the part of the townsmen who've refused to surrender the heretics in their town to the crusaders. A number of townsmen come out of the, the gates to attack a group of camp followers who are uh, taunting them from the riverside. Um, they're pursued by the camp followers who then get inside the gates and open the gates to the crusaders and a general sack ensues. This is a very infamous um, attack, the, the sack of Bézier in, in 1209. Um, it's widely well known. It, lead to, it led to a fire which destroyed the, the city, um, widespread putting to, of the population to the sword. Um, and the famous, infamous, uh, if apocryphal remark that the papal legate when asked what to do and how to, to determine which citizens were heretics and which were, were Catholics uh, is reputed to have said, kill them all for the Lord will know his own, which he almost certainly didn't say at the time but it captures the, to some extent the spirit of, of the attack. Uh, several weeks later, the Crusaders moved on, captured Raymond Rogers' other capital, Carcassonne, and Raymond Roger himself after a siege. This they didn't put to the torch, uh, but kept to be the capital for a new Orthodox Lord who would um, carry on the, the business of the peace and the faith. Uh, the man who was elected eventually was Simon of Montfort, who was a uh, middling baron uh, from the environs of Paris in France, also had a claim to the earldom of Leicester in England, though he would, had been uh, dispossessed of it by the, the King of England. Uh, and he takes command of the crusade and takes over the lands of Raymond Roger, who died a few months later in prison. This leads to, uh, this is in, in 12, uh, end of 1209 and through 1210 and 1211, there are a series of constant back and forth campaigns to capture fortresses who then revolt as soon as the Crusaders have left the region. Um, and it's a general attempt to put down uh, opposition to this new Crusader regime. By 1211, however, Raymond of Saint-Gilles, Raymond of Toulouse has uh, fallen out with the church yet again and the crusade is turned back towards its original target in his lands in, in Toulouse. And so, the crusade moves into the county of Toulouse, ends up conquering much of the, the county except for Toulouse itself, brings a lot of the satellite counties, uh, the county of Rodez, um, the county of Comanche, uh, Cousinant, uh, these areas that are on the outskirts of the county of Toulouse come under crusader influence or are conquered by the crusaders. Um, and Ray, Raymond is, is essentially isolated uh, in, his, in his capital. At this point, 
on the Crusader side, Simon of Montfort and his followers are starting to consolidate their, their government. But meanwhile, Raymond is appealing to allies from elsewhere, including his brother-in-law, uh, Peter of Aragon, who's the King of Aragon on the other side of the Pyrenees and has had long-standing interests in a lot of the lands that Simon has been invading um, and is now looking for an opportunity to increase his authority in Toulouse itself. He first convinces the Pope to cancel the crusade. This uh, works until the crusaders send a counter message to, to Rome, get the crusade back on. But at this point, Peter is convinced that he is going to destroy this uh, crusader, uh, crusader regime. So he crosses the Pyrenees in 1213, in the summer of 1213, uh, and marches towards Muret, which is on the Garonne River. It's one of the furthest crusader outposts, and it's lightly defended. And Peter knows that if he goes to attack it, Simon will have to come and defend it. Uh, his objective is to capture or kill Simon in battle and, and bring about a decisive uh, judgment on the crusader um, campaign. Simon takes the bait, goes to Muret, and although he's outnumbered by the allied forces of the Catalans, the Aragonese, the Toulouse, the militia of Toulouse, so this isn't just the, the count, it's also the, the, the people of Toulouse uh, who are arrayed against the crusaders. They come out to fight against Simon. Simon obliges them, rides out into battle, uh, and in the initial shock of the two sides of cavalry, Peter is killed, which brings about an end to the battle. The allied forces flee, the Toulousan militia who are not on horseback are cut down by the crusaders and Simon's victory seems to be assured. In 1215, shortly thereafter, the Fourth Lateran Council is called, which is a major council to organize the affairs of Christendom, to organize a new crusade, to liberate the Holy Land, and also to regulate the business of the peace and the faith. And through a somewhat uh, contentious process, eventually the Pope is convinced that Raymond is to be deposed, Simon is to be made Count of Toulouse in his place, um, and this is confirmed by the King of France early in 1216. However, just as Simon seems to be reaching the, the height of uh, his power, uh, Fortune's wheel turns and drags him underneath it. So Raymond's son, who's a much more energetic figure, also named Raymond, who will later become Raymond VII, organizes an attack on Beaucaire, which is on the, the Rhone River on the eastern outpost of Simon's domains. Uh, ties Simon up in a very long siege, which Simon is unable to, uh, to break. Beaucaire falls to, to Raymond, uh, and Simon is thrown back on, he's, he's iner his inertia is lost, and he has to return to Toulouse, where uh, a fresh rebellion breaks out in 1217. Raymond VI returns to his city. Simon's tied up in yet another siege, at which he's eventually killed in 1218. This brings an end to the first phase of the crusade in which the crusaders were largely dominant and, and descendant. Simon's son, Amalric, takes over his lands but is unable for a variety of reasons, both personal but also financial, and also because he's faced with a, a much more capable opponent in the person of Raymond VII. He's unable to hold on to his father's domains and by 1224 he sells the family's rights in the south to the king of France, uh, who's now Louis VIII. Um, Louis VIII doesn't do anything initially, um, and there's a certain amount of wrangling with the Pope about who's going to pay uh, for a conquest of the South. But in 1226, Louis VIII does finally march south. He gets stopped at Avignon and has to besiege the city of Avignon, uh, or chooses to besiege the city of Avignon in order to make his progress into the South. But even while he's in Avignon, he's receiving a flood of submissions from the Lord's of the Midi, because the prospect of the King of France himself coming is a very different one from some jumped up baron from the environs of Paris under the cross. And as a result, uh, Raymond VII now, his father having died in the, in the interim, is isolated uh, and facing the, the prospect of uh, a royal conquest of his county. Fortunately, perhaps for Raymond, Louis dies during his progress through the south of dysentery. He, Louis dies of dysentery. And uh, as a result, Raymond is given a bit of breathing space, but not very much because Louis has all the resources of the royal administration behind him. 
sets up a Seneschal Umberto Bojo, who uh, continues to harry the Tolosan forces, wages a scorched earth campaign, and eventually brings Raymond to the negotiating table. In 1229, Raymond, Raymond accedes to the Treaty of Paris, which allows him to retain the county of Toulouse, though not his eastern lands, but brings the Viscounties of Béziers and Carcassonne under royal domain and forces Raymond's daughter, Joan, to marry the brother of the now young king, Louis IX. Uh, Joan now has to marry his, his brother, Alphonse of Poitiers, and their children will become Count of Toulouse if they have children, and if they don't have children, their uh, lands will revert to the French crown, which is in fact what happens in 1271. So the crusade itself ends in 1229 with, a, with this settlement that Raymond is also supposed to uh, back the, the French king's persecution of heresy, finally. The situation bubbles over their continual revolts, uh, intrigues with the king of England, but eventually the situation is finally fully resolved in 1271, when the county of Toulouse passes to the French crown. Gosh, thanks for taking us through that broad sweep so um, so beautifully. Um, but you, you hinted there at some of the themes um, of, of this expedition, um, the business of the peace and faith, um, the, the opponents um, that the Crusaders were taking on and some of the, the, the politics within um, the Crusade and, and the different characters involved. And I suppose that leads us on to, to ask about where this expedition sits in the broader history of crusading because i think in the in the mainstream of crusading scholarship it would be fair to say um that the albigensian crusade hasn't really been treated that that scholarship tends to look more at expeditions to activities in the holy land and the albigensian crusade has been seen both in the scholarship and perhaps also in popular um, perceptions of something really quite different as, as a different beast. Is that how you would see the Albigensian um, expedition or, or do you see it as part of this broader wave of crusading? Yeah, I, I'll give a typical historian's answer and say yes and no. I mean, I think it's, it is on the one hand, yes, very much a, a departure from most previous crusading. It's not, in fact, the first crusade ever called against Christians, the Innocent III had used all of the panoply of crusading to fight against his, his opponents in Sicily at the turn of the 13th century. But it is certainly the most, the first extensive campaign against Christians that is uh, blessed with the sign of the cross and the indulgences that would be um, given to those who, who went to fight in, in the Holy Land. So in that sense, it is a departure and was seen as such by some contemporaries and, and continued to be seen as, as an aberration by particularly those who'd been affected by it um, throughout the 13th century. On the other hand, there is a thread of continuity that I think often does get overlooked, which is very important, which is if we, if we look at the Albigensian crusade as being a marriage between the mechanisms of crusading with the older institutions of the peace of God, I think it makes a great deal more sense. Uh, the peace of God is a movement that had, uh, was, can be traced back to, to post-Carolingian times immediately after the, the breakdown of, of uh, the Carolingian order in the uh, 9th and 10th centuries, but had largely been eclipsed elsewhere in Christendom by the peace of the king, let's say. Um, it had been no longer a, a, a decentralized, if we might call it a, not a grassroots movement, but a movement that's sponsored, let's say, by the bishops and by an alliance between the bishops and the people rather than by any sort of top-down political authority. However, in the Midi, in, in this, the south of, of modern France, uh, that wasn't really the case. As I said earlier, there wasn't a strong centralized authority in play in the region. And as a result, the peace of God continued to be a powerful means of expressing aspirations and even uh, real mechanisms for maintaining public order. Now, the peace of God over the course of the 12th century encompassed not only opposition to rampaging mercenaries or um, attacks on other people's peasants, um, more classical concerns of the peace of God, but had also grown to encompass, at least by the 1160s, in some cases, uh, had grown to encompass a concern about heresy and the spread of heresy. 
or, or at least dissident forms of, of uh, religious expression. So we have this business of the peace and the faith as something that is very much being promoted from a sort of axis between Paris and Rome uh, in the latter 12th century. But it's also a concern that can be seen, albeit expressed in different language, in the media itself. And I think one way of looking at the Albigensian crusade that perhaps isn't often enough explored is the way in which the mechanisms of the Albigensian crusade, particularly in its earliest stages, reflect older traditions of the peace of God. For instance, in 12, uh, 1208 into 1209, as the crusaders are marching uh, down the Rhone, there are a series of oaths sworn by different Provençal lords, and also by Raymond VI of Toulouse in order to reconcile them to the church and to, to lay the groundwork for this coming crusade. Again, the crusade is not targeted at Provence, but there's an attempt by the papal legates to get the Provençal lords on board. And one of the things that they bake into these, these oaths are the old formulae of the peace of God, um, concerns about not hiring mercenaries, concerns about not uh, extorting money from travelers in order to, to use public roads. Uh, all of this sort of business is, is there as a foundational part of the Albigensian crusade, and it does continue to recur uh, in the legislation that is promoted by the crusader regime uh, throughout the, the crusade. And finally, in the, not, to some extent in the Treaty of Paris itself, but also in the subsequent Council of Toulouse in 1229, which attempts to put a cap on the Albigensian crusade and consolidate the political gains uh, and spiritual gains that have been made by the crusade. So the, the important takeaway there, I suppose, is that while we are looking at crusading being used in a different way than it has been used before, it's being married to quite a traditional expression of concerns about the peace. And, and actually, Bézier offers a really interesting example of this. If we're thinking about the violence at Bézier and thinking about the, the horrific slaughter of this, this population, it, it doesn't um, make it any more palatable, but it perhaps makes it a bit more understandable if we think about that being something that happens in the context of the peace. Part of what the peace of God was, that it was the idea that all men and women are protected by the peace, but also have to uphold the peace. And if they don't uphold the peace or if they contravene the peace, they are then excluded from the peace and therefore fair game to be uh, attacked by those who do keep the peace. If we think about the citizens of Béziers in their refusal to hand over the heretics amongst, amongst them as setting themselves outside of the peace, the destruction of Béziers makes a bit more sense, if not uh, you know, being any more conscionable. And this idea that people who were outside the peace were, were in a sense, fair game um, and, and could fall prey um, to, to the violent um, uh, vengeance of, of the Crusaders. Is this how we should understand some of the other acts that are particularly characteristic of this crusade? I think perhaps some of the most notorious episodes um, that have been made much of uh, in, in the scholarship and also in, in kind of popular understandings of the expedition are um, some of the acts of, of execution, of torture, of mutilation. Um, there is the, the notorious incident in, in 1210 where Simon of Montfort captures um, a garrison and um, has about a hundred um, of, of uh, hundred prisoners, um, he has their eyes gouged out and, and their noses cut off. And, and this is sort of not celebrated is the wrong word, but it, it is retold by um, the pro-crusades um, chronicler um, of the expedition without, without too much difficulty. Um, so it is, I suppose, is this kind of violence that we're seeing, is that uh, something that is particular to the Albigensian crusade that we don't see elsewhere? And how do we explain that? Is, is that part of, of um, this being married to the peace movement? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. Apologist um, for the crusade who writes this account of the mutilations at Brown. It's interesting because he does seem to be troubled by this. He has to make excuses for it. He has to say, uh, oh yes, well, the, the, the count did this, but not because he enjoyed 
mutilating people, but rather because um, it had been done by the other side first. Um, and he makes it, he makes a, a, a rather uh, explicit, gives a rather explicit account of the uh, mutilation and attack on uh, crusaders by, by another Southern Lord. I, I'm, I suppose I'm slightly of two minds about this. On the one hand, I think it is obviously horrific and the attempts to justify it um, are show that it was seen to be particularly horrific at the time. On the other hand, I, I wonder sometimes if, it, if the impression we get of the particular barbarity of the Albigensian crusade is to some extent a product of the fact that we have a number of very concentrated sources that are all giving the same very bloody accounts, which we might find isolated in a number of different sources if we were going to look at, say, uh, the campaigns of the Plantagenets against the Capetians or um, Louis VII, for instance, um, had in the 12th century burned down a church filled with people, which he felt very bad about and went on, did penance for. Um, but these kinds of horrible attacks on non-combatants were not uh, the exclusive preserve of the Albigensian crusade. Now, whether the, the nature of putting the conflict under the banner of the peace of God or under the banner of the crusade meant that the, the nature of the violence changed somewhat, I'm not sure. I mean, I think clearly the case of Bézier, which by the way, Peter explains very differently. He doesn't seem to be at all apologetic about that. Um, the destruction of Bézier was entirely what they had coming for them, um, and he's, uh, he's as exultant about it as are the papal legates who were there. Significantly, Innocent III never responds to that letter, so he may have had a different opinion. But I think to some extent, we could place the violence at Bézier under the auspices of the peace in a way that gouging out people's eyes and cutting off their noses is somewhat less um, clearly... A, a, a peace response to violence. Another example that's perhaps worth thinking about, I know because it, it also connects with, with some of the work you've done um, later in the, in the 13th century, um, and you've, you've drawn some of these examples yourself, is um, when the city of, or the town of Lavar is captured, the noblewoman who's the, the, the lady of, of Lavar, um, as well as her, her brother and um, 80 of his knights are all killed by the crusaders, not, not in battle, but, but executed. Um, and this killing of nobles is something that is very uncharacteristic of medieval warfare. Um, it's rare enough that nobles would be killed on the battlefield because it's a much more lucrative proposition to capture them and ransom them. But certainly killing them after the battle is, um, is seen as being particularly harsh. Um, and this would be, this would come up again later when, uh, in Sicily, when Charles of Anjou, under, again, under the banner of a, a crusader in taking Sicily for the Pope, uh, would execute a, a rival claimant um, after having captured him in battle. And this also, even in, later in the 13th century, would still send shockwaves through Europe. But again, the crusade sources, the, the pro-crusader sources like Peter of Vodicene are keen to justify this in terms of repeated betrayal um, by the, the, the Lord who's, one of the Lords who's, who's killed along with his knights. Um, and I think there are a couple of lessons to be drawn from that. One is that this is still noteworthy enough that it draws attention. So we are looking at something that is out of the ordinary, but at the same time, it makes the crusaders feel uncomfortable enough that they feel they have to justify it in a way that, uh, say, Richard the Lionheart at Acker didn't feel he had to particularly justify his execution of 3,000 Muslim prisoners. So I think what we're sitting, we're sitting in a sort of liminal position here because we're looking at something that is changing. There's a, a, an application of the crusade against Christians. There's, I think, the evolution or co-option of the peace of God movement, um, which is traditional, but it's being used in a new way. And observers, even pro-crusader observers, aren't quite, are entirely sure how to handle this. They believe it's justified, but they're also aware that not everyone else might, would automatically agree. And I suppose when we think about sort of the nature of the violence 
in, um, in this region during the expedition, um, whatever the cause might be, that is very much one of the legacies that, that the Crusaders left in, in, in popular memory, um, particularly when one visits the region today. Um, but the other, yeah, very much, it's just um, going to, to Toulouse or, or Carcassonne or, or, or around the countryside there, it's saturated in presentations of, of, of the Albigensian Crusade. And there's road signs up everywhere telling you that you are entering um, Cathar country. But th this is part perhaps of, of this war being seen as almost sort of a war of cultures. And the, the, the nobility of Northern France coming down to the South mm. and trying to eradicate um, sort of Southern culture and Southern language and Southern tradition. To what extent do you think that has any roots in the 13th century itself, or, or is that a much later um, perception? It clearly has relevance in the 13th century. There is, for instance, um, a much much later crusade commentary, contemporary. He was a young, young boy when the crusade was happening, but he writes in the 1240s and the 1270s, William of Puylon, writes about the, and he's, he's comes from a, he's a, he's a clergyman, he writes in a, in a broadly pro-crusade vein, but is himself um, a southerner. He grew up in Toulouse. He writes that in the initial days of the crusade up to 1211, uh, Simon of Montfort was quite friendly with southern knights, but <clears throat> he had um, a particular knight in his following who was a southerner, William Catt, who I believe even stood as um, godfather to his, his daughter. But when William Catt betrayed Simon at the Battle of Castelnaudary, William of Puylaurent remembers that, uh, or records that Simon no longer trusted the men of our language, of our tongue. And so this, this distinction between those who speak the Languedoc, the, 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 the French, uh, what, what would become modern French, um, and characteristic of the lands north of the Loire, and the, those who speak the Languedoc, um, those who speak the, the, the Romance dialect south of the Loire, is uh, an a distinction that's observed by contemporaries and one that does bear some relation to how the battle lines are drawn. That being said, those distinctions can be drawn too sharply um, because they're informed by modern concerns about regionalism, about uh, resentment against centralized control. They're about opportunities for uh, tourism, uh, <clears throat> tourism income. And I think when we look at a lot of what's happening in, during the Albigensian Crusade, we see that the borders are actually much murkier. Um, we have people, close associations before 1211 between people like Simon of Montfort and William Catt. We have the brother of Raymond of Toulouse, Baldwin of, of Saint-Gilles, fighting for the Crusaders until he's murdered by uh, his countrymen in 1214. We have a, a host of lords uh, from the, the regions around Toulouse uh, making their fealty to Simon in as late as 1217 and the eve of his death in 1218. So it's not a, a black and white distinction between uh, northerners versus southerners. Uh, as again, we can see even under Louis VIII and the, the readiness with which southern lords are, are willing to, including implacable enemies of the crusade like the Count of Foix, um, are willing to accept Louis as their king and overlord and make uh, uh, their obedience to him. So it's not a simple black and white, uh, north versus south, um, but those are not completely modern categories that we're imposing on the past. Uh, but I do think we need to be more sophisticated in how we understand what's going on here, rather than seeing it through modern lenses of nationalism or regionalism. Talking of, of this distinction or, or this relationship between the past and the present and how modern perceptions of, of, of this conflict um, both in, in sort of popular imagination and in, uh, in the scholarship relate back to concerns of the time. You mentioned there that the tourist industry in, in the region today, which is, is just so prevalent when you get there, it really strikes me how much the Cathars have been appropriated for that, that, that tourist industry and have become such a part 
of of that kind of regional identity and how it's promoted to people visiting the region um, today. And perhaps it, it it slightly sits at odds with some of the trends in in recent scholarship because the, the whole idea of of, of Cathar heresy um, and dualist heresy in, in um, and its relationship to this expedition has has been a topic of a lot of debate, hasn't it, amongst historians over um, over the years and and at the more extreme end, um, we have some who have who have um, cast doubt about the extent of or, or perhaps even the existence of of heresy of this sort in the region. This and this probably just seems like quite an outlandish claim to some who aren't familiar with that work. And I, I wondered if you could explain a little bit how those historians have come to that view and 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 whether or not you're you're persuaded by it, perhaps. Yes, I suppose I'll play something of of devil's advocate here because I'm not persuaded by the more extreme claims uh, that that there were no dualist heretics uh, in the south of France. But the the argument goes and is, is based on an attempt to read very closely the primary sources that survive, particularly from the, the 12th century, um, and the accounts of heresy there to see whether there is any real substance uh, to these claims about the dualist nature of heresy, and to try and read them in their own particular context rather than trying to extrapolate from them a broad, uniform nature of, of dissident belief. And I think I do think that that in itself is a very worthy uh, undertaking because I think there has traditionally within the historiography been far too ready uh, an uh, assumption that material, particularly material we have from the 13th century, can be read back in an uncomplicated way to cover references to heresy um, anywhere and everywhere, but particularly in the south of France, as though we're talking about exactly the same thing. The more extreme and would argue that in fact, there is no such thing as uh, heresy in the south of France in the 12th century and even well into the 13th century. Uh, this would be scholars like uh, Mark Gregory Pegg, who's an Australian historian who um, works in the United States, R.I. Moore, who, who's an expert on uh, heresy in a, in a slightly earlier period, but is, is, um, there's a lot of commonality between his, his arguments about an earlier period with what's happening in the 12th and 13th centuries. And they would say that if we look at these testimonies of heresy or reports of heresy from the 12th century, all of them can be seen to have uh, ulterior political motives, uh, concerns about the precarious nature of employment by clerks working in secular administrations, and effectively and, and uh, betray the influence of reading too much Augustine effectively, and then extrapolating Augustine's concerns about Manichaeism onto their contemporary situation and trying to read uh, their surroundings through the light of, of Augustine's concerns about Manichaeus. I think that works in some cases better than others. Um, and I do think that there is uh, enough evidence that heresy was recognized by people who were living in the South, who were not attached to the papal reform program, which was interested in pushing heresy. But that doesn't mean that these papal sources or these observers from England or northern France are accurate anthropologists in their reporting of what's going on in the south of France either. So there is a letter from Raymond V of Toulouse, the father of Raymond VI, to the abbot of Cito uh, arguing, asking for him to uh, intervene, to send preachers to preach against dualist heretics in his lands. Um, it's recorded in an English chronicle, and therefore the argument's been made that it's in fact a, um, a piece of propaganda by the, the Plantagenet regime to justify their um, intervention in Toulouse, a bit like um, the, the WMDs uh, in, in Iraq in, in 2003. Um, and therefore, it's, it's entirely made up. I, I think that goes a bit far, uh, particularly when we can see in a number of charter evidence, a number of charters that survive from the time, uh, that there is evidence of locals talking about heretics and talking about people they know to be heretics. And taking up, there's, there's, in, in the, the 1160s, there's a peace oath that's sworn by um, 
a local man to the Bishop of Lodev, in which he marries into the peace oath a resolve to, to work against heretics as well. So this is, is clearly a, a live issue in, in the South uh, and not only something being imagined in Rome. That being said, um, in contradistinction to the Pays Qatar uh, moniker that brings tourists to the South of France, I don't think heretics were ever uh, so numerous in the South that they approach anything like uh, uh, a majority or even a parody with the Catholic population. I think what seems much more to be the case is whatever heretics there were and whatever they may have believed, they were seen as being alternative points of holiness that were outside of the Catholic church through their, their, their embrace of asceticism, of, of a very um, public, life of self-denial, of poverty, that was seen in a model of earlier exemplars of holiness and of saints' lives, that meant that locals would not perhaps have been so interested in the content of their beliefs uh, as in the conduct of their lives. And we see this in the way in which the Cistercians are called to, to preach against them, to reform the church in order that they won't, the, the, the St. Dominic himself comes into the region and, and tries to combat this through modeling the same apostolic life of poverty. Um, and, and so what's happening is, is not that the majority of the population is won over to heresy, but rather that heretics are allowed to move about, to preach, to convert people with impunity, precisely because they are seen to be holy men and to be laying claim to an older tradition of holiness that was wholly Catholic, but they're, they're in some sense being more Catholic than the Catholics um, in, the, in the model of life that they're living, this apostolic life that they're living, which is leading to what we might today term as religious indifferentism, uh, which does not square with the objectives of the papal reform program. And we also have to remember that this is an area of Europe where the Gregorian reforms of a century earlier never really gained much purchase. And so the heretics are in some ways fulfilling the desire for a more spiritualized church um, that is being fulfilled elsewhere by, by the Catholic church. And thinking about this, um, this landscape um, of, 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 of faith um, and society in um, southern France, and it, I suppose it does invite quite sharp comparisons with, with what we might understand of what was going on in the north and, and the areas around Paris and, and, and life there that forms an important context for the career of the Crusades leader, Simon of Montfort, who, who you've written about um, in your book and, 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 and in articles elsewhere. I mean, I wonder, he's a figure that very much has been demonized, not just in, in popular perceptions of, of the expedition, but also um, in uh, longstanding scholarship. But you've, you've shown um, in your book and, and elsewhere um, the sort of complexities of his career and how he um, engaged with the Gregorian reform movement um, and his role as um, a lord and governor as well. What was it that, that drew you to him as a topic of research? Well, when I was doing my master's, I was already very interested in, in crusading and I was looking at the uh, order of uh, hospitallers in the Holy Land, um, the, the military order. And I was looking at the ways in which they were cultivating independent political power in, in the Holy Land. But it was also quite clear that the, the hospitallers were pretty well-trod ground. And I had just started reading about the Albigensian Crusade, which, although I had studied history as an undergraduate, um, it had been largely modern history um, that, that was offered at, at BMI. Um, and so discovering the Albigensian Crusade was, was fascinating, I suppose for some of the reasons that we've covered in, in this chat already, which this, the way in which crusading could be repurposed and directed against Christians as a means for establishing a more perfect Christian Republic um, struck me as, as being really fascinating. And within that, the fact that there was this clearly incredibly charismatic and capable leader uh, who embodied at the same time the, the capacity for intense brutality, 
but also uh, a real vision, not only for military genius, but also for political organization in, in trying to establish this, this Christian Republic. I found it surprising that not very much had been written about him, certainly not from a scholarly standpoint, a number of, of uh, biographies that sort of sit on the, the marriage of the academic and the, and the popular uh, had been written, but none that had done the work of going into the archives, engaging um, at, at the coalface with the material that was out there beyond the, the narrative sources or the, the most obvious charter evidence. Uh, so I looked into doing it for my, for my doctorate. And the more that I started to uncover, the more I found was, was really there, um, that painted a picture not of someone that uh, had not been, uh, the more I, I started to uncover about Simon Montfort, the more I found that there was, uh, not that the picture that had been painted of him so far was entirely untrue, but rather that it was only part of the picture and it was incomplete. And that in fact, we're looking at uh, a man who exercised violence uh, in, as I say, sometimes very brutal ways, but also allied that violence to a vision of peace and order that was, um, for want of a better word, somewhat progressive for its time. I suppose what fascinated me about that so much was the way in which this, the, the sword and the, uh, the scales of justice were not in opposition to each other, but rather very closely married in ways that seem strange to us in our modern liberal societies, but were lionized uh, in the 13th century. And I wanted to kind of get to the core of, of what was happening there um, in, in the way that one constructs government centered on a, a personality like that. And in terms of looking at um, Simon's government, um, that led you on then to exploring a whole new source base, really, that hadn't perhaps been interrogated in the way um, that, it, that it might have been for this expedition, because we have those um, narrative accounts that, that, that you've talked about, and including Peter of Levaux de Cernay, um, uh, the Cistercian uh, narrator of this expedition which have been um, edited and, and published but perhaps not always appreciated or, or understood in the way that they might have been um, but you've done a lot of work in in the archives um, uh, as well looking at the material that was produced by uh, Simon's government could you tell us a little bit about that evidence um, and the sort of the shape of, of the material evidence that he's left behind and how you've gone about um, piecing it together? Yes, I mean, I think the most, one of the, the, the less well-used source bases for the Albigensian crusade and for Simon himself is the documentary evidence that survives, which is not to say that it's been ignored, but it, it doesn't feature prominently, I think, in uh, the wider understanding of, of Simon Montfort because, uh, let's face it, documents are often less uh, sexy than, than narrative histories. But what we, but they, it's, it's a great resource because so much of it has been preserved. Um, when Simon's, the, the Montfortine rights in the South were given over to the king and inherited by the royal administration after 1229, efforts were made to document uh, exactly what the rights of the king were in the region based on the rights that, Mon that the Montforts had held in the region. And so we have these royal registers that are compiled in the mid 13th century that record numerous acta that would not have otherwise survived. And so we have a, a, in some ways a very privileged insight into the documentary production of this, this Montfortine regime. Now, a lot of it's rather uh, pedestrian, uh, receptions of homage, um, the uh, grants made to, to cathedrals or to monastic houses. But some of it is really rather telling. Um, I'm thinking particularly of um, a document that to my knowledge has never been published um, and is, is usually uh, passed over without comment uh, or even ignored, which is a grant that Simon made in the county of Rodez in 1217 uh, to the Templars, the Hospitallers, and the Cistercians, exempting them from the peace tax. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because Simon was not Count of Rodez. In fact, he issues this alongside the Count of Rodez. So he's clearly setting himself up as 
not only the Count of Toulouse, but exercising in some function an overlordship over the wider region. But also it's a clear taking up of earlier peace institutions and absorbing them into the Montfortine government. Um, one of the mechanisms of the peace was a tax that would be levied by all those who were um, grazing their flocks or their herds. And they would pay a tax um, in different places to different people, to the bishop or to the count or very frequently to the Templars. And that would be effectively money that would subsidize the protection of those flocks so that a neutral party would guarantee that the flocks would not be attacked. This is a, ma a major feature of the peace in, in the south of France. Um, and in Rodez, this had been around since the 1170s. It was a piece that was, uh, it was a, a tax that was paid to the bishop and the bishop would guarantee the protection of the flocks. What seems interesting to me in that Simon is providing these exemptions alongside the bishop and the Count of Rodez is that he's taking responsibility for the piece. Um, he is now the Count of Toulouse. He's exercising his authority, uh, not for the peace of the Count, but still for the peace of God, but it's one that he is now upholding. And it's a, a deliberate attempt, I think, to show that he is doing this in a more active way than his predecessors had. And the exemption of the Templars, the Hospitallers, and the Cistercians seems to me to be a deliberate signaling of the partnership that those orders play in the pr protection of the peace and the faith. Um, the Templars and the Hospitallers most obviously in the defense of the Holy Land, but also we need to think, keep in mind the role that the Templars played in protecting flocks, um, and keep in mind the role that the Cistercians played in, in battling heresy and in promoting the Albigensian Crusade. So that's one of these charters that I think has been largely uh, ignored that, that it actually throws up an awful lot of interest in understanding how the Albigensian Crusade works, how um, a Crusader government might work. More explicitly, I might say something about the Statutes of Pamiers, which is, is sort of the seminal uh, work of, of Crusader legislation um, in this context, which is a, uh, it's written up at the, at the end of 1212, after Simon has uh, conquered most of the county of Toulouse, save the, the Toulouse itself, Montauban, but before Peter of Aragon has, has intervened in the conflict. And it's a work of consolidation, uh, 46 customs, plus uh, a rider of, of three customs agreed between Simon and his, his fellow crusaders uh, in order to put the, the conquests on um, a new, still military footing, but one that's intended to introduce the reforms that are deemed to be necessary to purge the land of, of heresy and of bad government. That takes us on um, very nicely to, to looking at the statutes of Pamiers in a bit more detail, um, because this is, is the work of, of your new um, project in your, your forthcoming book uh, with OUP. Uh, I suppose for those people who aren't um, familiar with the Statutes of Pamiers, where they might have come across them is where they've been seen as a sort of a precursor to Magna Carta in 1215. Obviously, they come very shortly before uh, Magna Carta, and there were lots of connections uh, between uh, various figures on, on the Albigensian Crusade and uh, the court of, of King John in England. And um, a few years ago now, when we had the big Magna Carta anniversary in 2015, the statutes were recalled upon as this sort of precursor and in the, the fantastic exhibition at the British Library on Magna Carta, we were actually fortunate enough to have the statutes there on display, which was absolutely phenomenal. It, it, remains, it remains the only time I've actually seen the, the, the original document because they're, it's quite difficult to ac access in the-, in the Yeah, and it was just, it was a real thrill, I think, um, seeing them, seeing them there. But your, your new project looks to explore the Statutes of Pamiers, perhaps not quite in the context of a precursor of Magna Carta, but part, is a broad, uh, part of a broader picture about governance um, and lawmaking um, across a much broader geographical um, uh, scope. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what, what you're aiming to do there and, and how you're going about it? How should we see the Statutes of Pamiers as part of that bigger picture? Yeah, I think, again, the statutes are fascinating because they reveal so much and yet have had so little written about them. There is no critical edition of the statutes. There's never been an in-depth uh, scholarly study of them. Um, the closest study to, to D 
dealing with the statutes on their own terms. It was written uh, just after the Second World War, and it was um, very much concerned with the role that inheritance law played in them, which is often how they're, they're characterized in the literature. They, they always get a, a look in in an account of the Albigensian Crusade and are usually characterized as being, here's an example of French colonization of the South, because one of the clauses regulates that all inheritance, whether by barons, by knights, by burghers, or by peasants, will be according to the customs of France around Paris. So it's seen as being this importation of French law into the South. And again, that's not untrue, but it's quite a limited view of 46 uh, customs to look at simply one of them. Actually, if one decenters the historiographical traditions surrounding the statutes of Pamir and looks, takes the statutes themselves as a starting point, I think it affords an opportunity for some really interesting insights. So what I'd like to do is, is first of all, look at the statutes not as an example of the imposition of inheritance law, first and foremost, recognizing that that's a part of it, and in fact is the most durable part, because of course, after the Albigensian Crusade comes to an end, and the French lords who had been given lands and re-given lands by the King of France after he, he finalizes the conquest, uh, they continue to govern their lands in accordance with this agreement between Simon and his barons, which includes this provision about um, French inheritance. Uh, which becomes a very uh, knotty question later on when uh, in the 14th and 15th centuries. But that's about the 14th and 15th centuries, not about what's happening in 1212. And then the other fulcrum that's usually used as a, as a place to look at the statutes from is, is Magna Carta, as you, as you said, which I think is, is very valuable to look at Magna Carta and recognize that it's not unique uh, expression of, of these kinds of reformed customs. But actually, the statutes of Pamier are helpful in that they come before Magna Carta. They have no vision that Magna Carta is coming after them, despite the fact that there, is, there, are, there are personal connections which may or may not have influenced Magna Carta more or less directly. But if we set our, um, our hinge at the statutes of Pamier itself, I think it really changes our vision of the landscape and how these customs work together. So one of the things that I want to do with my new project is to look at the statutes in their totality, look at the way in which they regulate on the peace of God legislation, the abolition of tolls on roads, the um, forbidding of doing violence against another person to distrain someone for the debt of another, which is which was quite common in, in the region. That peace characteristic, but also the way in which it introduces a system of accountable government that is really quite remarkable for when it comes. Even, um, and this was a point made frequently uh, in a couple of years ago with the Magna Carta project is, even Magna Carta doesn't really introduce any accountability on the part of the barons. It's the barons holding the king accountable. Magna, uh, the Statutes of Pamier, on the other hand, introduce uh, a number of mechanisms for appeal to the count to redress wrongs, for the count to hold his barons um, to, uh, to justice if they exceed the amount of tax that they're allowed to, to impose on their peasants. And even, and I, I really do think this is the most radical aspect of it, that implicit uh, in the obligation of the count to do justice for those at the, at the very bottom of society, these, these tallage paying peasants, is that the peasants themselves are given the right to leave the lands that they work for the lordship of someone else if they don't like the amount of tallage that is arbitrary tax that they're forced to pay. So again, this isn't made explicit, but implicit in that is the idea that if the count does not efficiently resolve their complaints, they can take matters into their own hands and leave. And in order to, to guarantee that, another clause forbids lords from taking pledges from their peasants to keep them on their lands. So it creates this very radical labor market effectively, where uh, that would have the effect of keeping tallages down because you don't want to lose your workforce, but also empowers peasants to have the agency to, to resolve these things themselves. And I, I think that's remarkable for, for a number of reasons because it doesn't actually bear very much resemblance to Magna Carta. What it bears resemblance to is the provisions of Oxford and the provisions of Westminster, which is when Simon's son, whom you know so much more about, 
tries to introduce these same kinds of, of uh, accountability for the barons of England um, in the next generation in, in the 1250s. Um, the mechanisms are different, but, but I do rather wonder if there's a, a connection uh, between, the, between the two. It is such a contrast with Magna Carta 1215, isn't it? And it kind of, I, I suppose, um, not to kind of take this back to Magna Carta, which, you know, I'm always uh, probably likely to do, but it, it is perhaps a, a warning as well, perhaps about the way that Magna Carta 1215 is celebrated, because by contrast to the Statutes of Pamir, it does look very much like um, a, a, a document by which um, the barons, as much as King John, sort of sought to keep their tenants under their heel. Um, so, you know, I think that's where they, those sorts of comparisons can really help us illuminate um, ideas of governance in the 13th century. Yes. And I, I don't want to make claims that, that won't stand up for the statutes. I mean, they are, in other respects, very reactionary. And even in the, the um, freedom given to peasants to move from one lordship to another, it's not full emancipation. Mm -hmm. they still, they, they, they're still going to be tallage paying peasants. But, um, but I suppose that's partly the point is that trying to look at these things as kind of the um, heralds of democracy or heralds of, uh, is, is, is rather to miss what's so interesting about them, which is the different ways in which people are trying to respond to ideas about just Christian government and how that might be implemented. Um, and the response to that in uh, the South of France is very different from what it is in, in England. Um, but both are mixed up with a whole bunch of idealistic and very pragmatic concerns. And, and there, there's, a, there's a much wider constellation as well that, that we could bring in here. I mean, I, I've been thinking about uh, a lot of the ways in which the comparisons with Magna Carta have been made to say the Golden Bull of Hungary or uh, other examples of reform customs that are happening elsewhere. And thinking about those not in light of Magna Carta, but in light of statu the Statutes of Pamiers, again, that's not to take the, bull, the golden bull on its own terms, but when one looks at the constellation from a different vantage point, it reveals something rather different. And one of the things that's really remarkable, uh, the, the group of, of customs that we see in the first quarter, let's say, of the 13th century, um, thinking about Magna Carta, the Statutes of Pamiers, uh, the Golden Bull, the assizes of Messina and, and Frederick II's legislation in the Kingdom of Sicily, is that they all have, or, or even in fact, this is one that's often overlooked, is the, um, the land freedom of um, Baldwin of Hainaut in, in the county of Hainaut before he goes on the Fourth Crusade. They all have connections to crusaders. Now, I don't, I don't want to make too much of that, and crusading was um, a bit of a trend at the time amongst uh, prominent men in Europe. But it does seem interesting to me that either before setting out on crusade or after returning from crusade, or in the case of the Statutes of Pamiers, while on crusade, there is this impulse towards introducing accountable or at least uh, regulated customs uh, of government. Um, and I do think that it's not a coincidence that these ideas about a more perfect Christian Republic are floating around in the same contexts of, of people who are either getting ready to or are returning from fighting on the business of the cross. I think that it just helps us really thinking about that um, sort of legislative culture um, and perhaps it, its connections to crusading helps us to think um, about the Albigensian crusade in a very different light as well and, and, and some uh, of Montfort's government. I, I could just go on and on uh, chatting about all of this um, with you, Gregory, but um, we should probably um, bring things um, to a close. Well, it just remains for me then to, to thank you very much for, um, for, for joining us here on the podcast and, and for all of your insights into this period, which has just opened up um, so much um, of, uh, of what what we thought we knew um, about about the Albigensian Crusade and, and, and 13th century war um, and governance. Um, so thank you very much um, for joining us here. Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me, Sophie. Not at all. And um, just to point people towards um, where they can go to to read more about this. Um, obviously, there's your um, your first book um, on Simon V of uh, Montfort, which um, can be found um, via Oxford University Press. Um, your forthcoming book on the Statutes of Pamiers, 
um, in, in development at the moment. Um, and you've also got a blog um, on the University of Exeter um, website um, uh, for medieval studies, looking at um, a charter you've recently discovered um, about the Fourth Crusade, which um, we'll, we'll pop up the link um, on our website so that people can go um, and, and visit that. Um, and we very much look forward to the next phase of your publications. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Gregory. Thank you for listening. To hear further podcasts, please visit the CWD website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can find more on the CWD's research, events and teaching, including the MA in International and Military History.